This is Shelter in Place, a podcast about embracing the journey in a world forever changed. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Earlier this week, my family and I woke up at 3 a.m. to travel for 13 hours across the country to visit family for the holidays. I don't know about you, but I was tired before that trip. It's been a year of constant adaptation, a year when the first word on my lips when someone asks me how I'm doing is exhausted. And yet in many ways, it's been a good year too. It's been a year of going from wondering if we should even be doing this work to winning the Changing the World One Moment at a Time Award at the International Women's Podcast Awards. It's been a year of becoming a top 1% global podcast, and yet still trying to figure out how to make a living doing this work. The thing that no one ever tells you about being a weekly indie podcaster is that the work doesn't stop, even when life does. So while we're cooking up the coming episodes in between eggnog and Christmas carols, I wanted to share with you a very special version of the two-part episode that kicked off this season. It's an episode that began with our second Kasama Collective cohort, and then was completed with our third. I can't think of a better way to sum up the complexities of the last year than with this episode. If you're listening for the first time, I hope you'll share this with others when you're done listening, and make sure that you're subscribed to Shelter in Place wherever you're listening. If you'd like to learn how we create our Shelter in Place stories like the one you're about to hear, make sure to check out our Kasama Labs, our self-paced audio storytelling course that begins in January. Early bird registration is open for just one more week, and spots are limited, so make sure you get your spot at shelterinplacepodcast.org. Finally, we're dropping a bonus episode this week in the form of a Davis Family Audio Christmas card, or a holiday greeting if that's more your thing. Make sure to check out our feed so you don't miss it. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy today's episode from the shelter in place lost and found. It had been a week since we'd seen the sun. This was July of 2021. As a kid growing up in Minnesota, July was the best month. School and autumn were still too far away to feel real, and winter was a distant memory. 17 years in California have made me appreciate July for another reason. It's the last month before fire season. And yet, here we were in July, driving through Montana on our way home, and all we could see was smoke. The car smelled like a campfire, even though we duct-taped HEPA filters over the vents. All of us were cranky from hours of breathing bad air, and even the kids were starting to complain about pollution headaches. It had been this way since North Dakota. In state after state, the skies were clouded with wildfire smoke, often so low and thick that it looked like yellow fog. We'd canceled our plans to camp in Montana and instead stayed with friends in Helena, where we didn't go outside for the better part of three days. The constant gray gave the country a sameness that made even the big sky state feel small. We were 50 miles from Glacier National Park, and we knew that there were mountain ranges beside us, but we couldn't see them. My husband Nate turned to me from the driver's seat and said, I feel like this is a picture of our future in California. Our future in California had been a touchy subject for the better part of the last year. We'd left Oakland in September of 2020 because the combination of wildfire season, pandemic parenting, and financial struggle had pushed us to seek refuge closer to family who could help us with the kids. That's the story behind season two, the pandemic odyssey that took us from Oakland to Massachusetts and back again in the span of 11 months. Three of those months were spent on the road, but even with a year and a country behind us, we still didn't know if Oakland was our Ithaca. On paper, leaving Oakland was the obvious choice. Between wildfire season and the high cost of living, life there could feel exhausting. We both had family in parts of the country where life was more affordable and sustainable, where the air was clean and the rains came on schedule. During our travels, we saw many different versions of home. There was Massachusetts, where our kids spent weekdays with Grammy, and we discovered that our son loves winter. Virginia, where every row house in my sister-in-law's neighborhood backs up to shared parkland and playgrounds. 
New York, where graduates from our training program, who we'd only met on Zoom, greeted us with hugs and a picnic at a park in Queens. Indiana, where we picked and ate the best strawberries of the summer on the farm, where for 20 years, my college roommate and her husband have raised crops and six children. There were homes nestled in cities and forests, homes where people were packed in, and homes where everyone had a room of their own. All year, we lived with a sense of inevitability, an ache we couldn't seem to heal. The Montana skies felt like proof that the end was coming, that eventually we'd have to leave Oakland. We knew we could make a home somewhere else, but we were no closer to wanting to go. We were grieving the loss of our home in California before we'd even crossed the state line. And then, all at once, mountains emerged from the haze. The road climbed, curved, and descended. Waterfalls cascaded down cliffs and splashed onto the roads, close enough that the kids rolled down their windows to catch the mist in their hands. That sense of inevitability fell away. I forgot about it and my gratitude for the moment I was in. We're calling season three of Shelter in Place In Search of Home. Our pandemic odyssey didn't bring us to a neat and tidy resolution about what's ahead but it did remind us that there's a lot of joy and meaning to be found in the journey. It's a season about finding the moments along the way that can keep us grounded, even when life is spinning out of control. It's about shifting our focus, not just on what's been lost, but what's been found. So today in this special two-part episode, we're going to share stories from the shelter in place lost and found. They're stories about relationships and solitude, about finding your calling and losing your faith. There's even a story about hair. They're the voices that make up our shelter-in-place neighborhood that remind us that sometimes we need to lose our sense of home to find it. The thread you'll hear through all of them is one of stubborn joy, a refusal to give up even when things get hard. We hope you'll find a bit of yourself in each of these stories, starting with this one. What I've lost is the freedom to go to places that I love, meaning the movie theater. The movies. Who doesn't love a little escapism? Back in 2010, Nate and I lived in Manila for a year. The daily forecast was 90 degrees and 100% humidity. And even with fans on full blast, we were sweaty all the time. But there was one place where, for just a couple of dollars, we could sit in a dark, air-conditioned room. I saw more movies in that one year than at any other point in my life. Every time the lights went down and the sound flooded in, we were transported into another world. Every time the credits rolled and the lights went up, it was like waking from a dream. I had mostly forgotten that sensation until I heard this story. My name's Elaine Morris-Saltzman. I'm living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I've lived in the house that I'm living in now for 60 years. I wanted to start with Elaine's story because it was Elaine's granddaughter, Clara Smith, who came up with the idea for this episode. Clara sat down with her grandmother, who she calls Bubby, last May. When you're in a movie theater, you're in the dark. There's nothing that can distract you. There's no phones ringing. There's no doorbells ringing. It's just another world that you're transformed to. Sports, like tennis, you need somebody, a partner. A movie theater is something that you can do alone. Elaine lives alone, so I was a little surprised to hear that one of the things she loves about going to the movies was that she could go there alone. But then I thought back to the movies I saw in the Philippines, how normal it felt to sit in close proximity to strangers, not talking, just enjoying the feeling of being immersed. When you go to the movie, you have that suspension of disbelief. And with this pandemic, you can't suspend any disbelief because you have to believe there's a pandemic. You have to believe it's dangerous to be in close proximity. Last spring, when things were finally starting to open up, Clara and her family decided to help Elaine find her way back to the things she'd lost. My grandchildren know how much I love movies. It's my birthday, and they have arranged to rent a movie theater. My grandchildren are very careful, so I have 10 select people that are coming to the movie theater. The youngest is 22, the oldest is 86. And of course, we're not gonna be sitting close to each other, but still, we're going for a special occasion. And for many of the people, it's the first movie they've seen in a year and a half. The movie is Dr. Strangelove, made when there was conflict, 
And this movie is about the military. They were terrified of nuclear weapons. There was a Vietnam War. So many of the people weren't even born when this movie was made in 1964. But they can really identify. A lot was going on, and it was very, very frightening. And then you realize, you know what? This has been repeated. And this is what movies do. They capture an experience for you, you put it in your brain, and then many, many times you realize that you're going through that same experience again. I spoke to Clara this past week, and she said that Elaine is back to going to the movies every week. After losing them for a year, she appreciates them now more than ever. What is the point of having new chapters if you can't share it with those you care about? This next story comes to us not too far from where Elaine and Clara went to see Dr. Strangelove. I'm Alana Herlands. I'm a born and bred New Yorker. Like Clara, Alana is a Kasama Collective graduate. She was part of our very first cohort in January of 2021, a month that for many of us felt like the low point of the pandemic. We were approaching a year of pandemic living and beginning to understand that life might never fully return to the way that it had been before. I've lost the sharing that is so integral to opening new chapters of your life. I actually thought before the pandemic, I was more on the introverted side. During the pandemic, I moved out of my parents' house. I always pictured sharing my new apartment with my friends, and none of my friends have seen this apartment. Having this much solitude and silence, it's forced me to ask myself what is most important to me. When this is over, what do I want to welcome back into my life, and what do I want to leave behind? I'm sort of grieving. I've lost my childhood self. The part of myself that is naturally sociable, the ability to call my friend and ask them to go out to dinner and hugging them and sharing space with them and hearing their voice without the tinny sound of my computer or their phone. I think those little things actually have become very big things that I've lost over the past year. Through losing that, I've gained this incredible appreciation for what it means to be a messy human in front of another messy human. I've realized that being with other people, it actually is so incredibly energizing. What's interesting about this prompt of what have you lost and what have you gained? Like, this is just life. You're always losing and you're always gaining. And it's this constant ebb and flow. And I think this period of time has made me appreciate that entire flow. Things haven't turned out the way that Alana thought they would, but she says she's grateful for the changes that these pandemic losses have pushed her to gain. She recently moved out of that apartment that none of her friends had ever been to and moved into a new place with her boyfriend. They've been together since high school and they just celebrated their 10th anniversary. If you can get through a pandemic together and not want to kill each other, I mean, it's a feat. I'm very, very suddenly aware of the preciousness of life. No matter what age you are, I think just living within a global pandemic, you kind of just can't not recognize it. Even if there are situations that are outside of my control, like a pandemic, how can I find joy and beauty even in that circumstance? Because this is not a rehearsal before the dance, like this is the dance. One of the things that has been really interesting about this pandemic is seeing the range of ways that people's lives have changed. For my family, it felt like the bottom dropped out. But for some people, the opposite happened. Let's stick with finding. Let's stick with finding. And I guess the punchline would be each other. I'm Melissa. I'm an attorney who lives in Brooklyn, New York. Hi, I'm David. I also live in Brooklyn. I am in graduate school and I teach undergraduates. David and Melissa met during their freshman year at Vassar. Their junior year, they dated for a while, but as David applied for jobs in New York and Melissa got into law school in Washington, D.C., it became clear that they were headed in different directions. I sent a very heartfelt text along the lines of, we probably shouldn't talk anymore, and I'm moving to D.C., and that's that. 
still remember where I was. I was in a thrift shop buying for a murder mystery birthday party. And I was like, oh, that's sad. This was a decade ago, in 2011. Our parents are friends. Our parents have been on vacations together without us. So there was definitely a period there where our parents were seeing each other more than we were, but we would see each other every so often for a Friendsgiving type thing. And yes. I think there was always a little chemistry there, but you know, we were seeing other people. And then I met a man in DC. We got married in 2018. While Melissa was getting married, Dave and his girlfriend were moving in together. I was putt-putting my way towards a PhD. And all was good. Until it wasn't. In February of 2020, Dave and his girlfriend broke up. She kept the apartment. I moved out and was bouncing around on friends' couches for a little bit. At that point, I had been very much accepting the fact that marriage was ending. Right, as there was this pandemic thing starting to enter Europe. With work remote, you're kind of siloed, you're alone, you don't know what's going on, and you reach out to friends and families. We, at one point, through our mutual friend, Michelle, decided that Zoom trivia night would be fun. It was a Zoom Vassar celebration. That mutual friend is how we found David and Melissa. Michelle O'Brien was one of our second cohort Kasama Collective graduates. This was still early enough that getting on Zoom was kind of exciting and not the soul-crushing experience that it would later become. <laughs> We're chit-chatting. Both having experienced sort of significant breakups, both being alone and reflecting on that. That was the beginning of what we have now, which is something familiar, comfortable, but also something totally new. It's been fun to see how we've grown. We fell right back into things that worked when we were dating the first time. Like, I think we have a really similar sense of humor. Like, he's pretty corny on the joke side and it just kills me every time. I'm much better able to talk about my emotions and I've always thought you were so good at that. And I'm less dumb than I was like eight years ago. You know, 22 year olds can be very dumb. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was not expecting coming into a pandemic where I was living at my parents to find a partner or refind a partner. And that's what I did. I think that's what you did too. That is what I did. I was coming off of a pretty dark time. The number of people that said to me, you're a completely different person, so much noticeably happier now was really remarkable. You don't necessarily realize it, but when people around you who know you and love you see how happy you are and notice a change like that. My parents said the same thing. They're like, we've never seen you this happy. We've never seen you talk about somebody like this. There was this strange juxtaposition where I lost connection with everybody else in my life and yet found myself happier and more fulfilled than I had ever been before. There's something odd where the rest of the world was locked in and falling apart around me. And then here I was, it felt like I finally found where I was supposed to be in my life. Yeah, he's a poet. I'll be right back with more of this story right after a short message from one of our sponsors. Every time the holidays come around, I seem to revert to the worst version of myself. So this year, I decided to get some help before that happens. Since BetterHelp, the world's leading online counseling platform, is our newest sponsor, I figured I'd try it out for myself. BetterHelp removes some of the traditional barriers that go with in-person therapy. Instead of having to rehash my past repeatedly, on BetterHelp's website, you just click through an intake questionnaire. It only took me eight minutes to complete. You can filter for gender, age, religion, and more. I got matched with my therapist within 24 hours, and I was amazed at how affordable it was. My first appointment is next week, and I'll let you know how it goes. Join me in doing some preemptive holiday counseling. And as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month with the link betterhelp.com slash listener. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash listener. In a year where loneliness was the default, it didn't necessarily follow that all of us were alone. For those of us with small children, sometimes the loneliest times were the times when all we wanted was to be alone. I have a nine-year-old boy who is the love of my life. During this pandemic year, I have lost my mind dealing with my son. This is Elena Lobo, one of the parents at our school who has become a dear friend. She's a single mom who works three jobs to support her son, David. Somehow, she manages to take care of her community, too. 
One of Elena's three jobs is cooking and delivering meals to families in our community. When Nate lost his job two weeks into the pandemic and we were losing our minds dealing with our own kids, Elena was cooking and delivering meals to our doorstep for 12 weeks straight, and a dozen other moms at our school were chipping in to support Elena while she supported us. The longest-standing text thread I've ever been a part of is one that Elena created for 18 of her friends. I love being in the Bay Area. I love the diversity. I love the people. I love the community that we have. I love pretty much everything except the fires. Elena is originally from El Salvador, but she's been living in Oakland for 28 years. The best word I can think of to describe Elena is heroic. She almost died crossing the border when she was 17, which is another story for another episode. She's a pillar of strength for our school community and a rock for her son, David. While some kids thrived with virtual school or homeschooling, for David, learning in the pandemic felt almost impossible. David is a very smart kid, but he also have some learning disabilities that were very challenging during this time. And not being able to have the help and the support from a teacher, not wanting to do so. He was dealing with depression along with anxiety and uh, learning disabilities. So it has been a lot for him to process not being able to understand why he was not able to see his friend, not being able to fully understand the whole COVID thing. The fires last year were a huge impact in our life because we were not able to visit friends, not being able to go outside. He got more depressed. My job schedule was reduced. So instead of working as a nanny for 20 hours, I only work 10 hours a week. My job as the preschool is gone because we didn't have enough students. I never thought that I will be in a situation that I feel so terrified to be a mother and not being able to provide the quality of life to my child because in our community, we rely on each other. We depend so much on each other. And I think for me and for my son, that has been one of the biggest loss, not being able to be with each other, not being able to have dinner with friends, not being able to do anything together, and also not being able to go home to visit my family in El Salvador. Having lost three of my uncles due to COVID in El Salvador and not being able to be there to support my mother. That has been the biggest losses that I have during this COVID year. But in the midst of all of that loss, Elena found something too, something she hadn't even been looking for. Everybody kept telling me it was time for me to find somebody. But, you know, I was so busy focusing on David. We had soccer, we had basketball. That was my whole life, cooking, working. I had the preschool job, I had the nanny job. There was not enough time for me to think about getting into a relationship. I wasn't completely close to the idea. I was like, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, you know. A few months before the pandemic, Elena finally agreed to go on a dating app. I was kind of excited. She met a couple of people, but came away from the experience feeling disappointed. She wasn't looking for someone to change her life. She was looking for someone who wanted to step into the one she already had. It isn't easy when you are a single mom to find somebody that will take you seriously. Then one day she got a message from someone who seemed different. She looked him up but didn't reply. Not right away. I look at him and I say, okay, let's put it in the shopping cart. That's how I go. Let's put it in the shopping cart because I need to continue shopping. That was my thing. So he sent me another message. I'm still chopping, right? So the third day, I decided to reach out and answer his text. By this point, Elena was tired of hearing from men who lost interest as soon as they understood what they were stepping into. When she finally wrote back, she didn't mince words. I'm a single mother. I am independent. I'm not looking for somebody to take care of me. I'm able to do that. I need somebody to go for a wax, to have a relationship, to be a friend and to enjoy life. 
my son is and always will be my first priority. That will not change. So if you're willing to do that, we may have a future. For the first time, Elena found someone who wasn't scared off. He has two daughters. We think a lot alike. We like the same things. It's very easy going. We had our first day on December 29th. I was excited. It was fun. I said to him, this is what I have. This is who I am. This is what I need. We had a long conversation and I said, I am a single mother. We go to a beautiful school with an amazing community. I am supported by all of these moms and dads, and I am well taken care by all of them. Now, are you willing to commit to a relationship where you have to get involved with all these people? Because it's not only me, it's not only David, it's the whole community. Before talking to him about that, I went with our crazy friend, Jose, and I said, this is what I'm doing. I feel safe with him. I like him. I think that we have a lot in common. And I said, what do you think? He said, no, no. We have to put it in probation for six months. So I went back to him and I said, you know, Matthews, I went for a hike with Jose. And he said, first, you need to get in probation for six months. And he said, no, no, no. Tell Jose, three weeks. And I went back to Jose and I said, hey, Jose, I talked to Matt. He said, three weeks of probation is the maximum. He looked at me and he said, look, let me ask you this. Are you happy? Yes. Does he respect you? Yes. Then, probation is over. We introduced him to our friend. Most of us are fully vaccinated. So we had a little brunch in our house and he did very well. I found somebody special to share life with. It's been really good. Our foundation is strong. We know what we have. He loved the idea that we have a beautiful community. He loved the idea that we do so much with each other. So I'm happy too. Life hasn't stopped being hard just because Elena found love. David is back in school and there are still a lot of challenges. But on the hard days, when David's anxieties or school struggles feel insurmountable, Matthew is there to remind Elena that she's not alone. He tells her that she's doing a good job. She's a great mom. They're going to get through this. And the community that has been taking care of Elena and David for all of these years is still rallying around them. It's like Alana said, the losing and the finding, that's just life. It's part of what it means to be a messy human with other messy humans. That evening in July, when my family and I drove into Glacier National Park, we hiked to a hidden mountain lake with mountain goats trotting along the trail beside us. There were wildflowers everywhere, something we hadn't expected in late July. It was wonderful. As soon as we got back into our car and crossed over Logan Pass to head to our hotel, the smoky skies returned. When we crossed the state line to California, and then a few hours later past Mount Shasta, we could see smoke billowing up from the wildfires at Lassen National Park. But then something unexpected happened. The closer we got to Oakland, the clearer the skies were. We knew that the winds could change at any moment, but we also knew that something had shifted in our understanding. When we left Oakland a year ago, we were running away from a life that felt unsustainable. We knew that there was still a chance that we were returning only to leave again in a matter of months or years. But our reasons for returning now weren't the ones that had drawn us to California 17 years ago. We weren't there because of school or job opportunities. If we wanted to move someplace cheaper and easier, we could. We were returning home knowing that we were choosing it. And that choosing our home was something that not everyone got to do. What made Oakland home for us was the same thing that has made it home for Elena. The same thing that brought together Dave and Melissa. The same thing that Alana and Elaine have been longing for during these months alone. It's those sometimes messy relationships that make us feel most at home. Those people and places where we can let our guard down for a moment 
and just be ourselves. We woke up every morning to blue skies and calm waters. We water skied until our hands fell off the rope. Even though we were both working during the day, we were both more relaxed than we'd been in a very long time. This was all thanks to my parents and our adopted aunt Tony, who for the past 15 years or so had been designating one week a summer to take the grandkids up to International Falls, a place so far north that you can see Canada across the lake. This year was the first time all three of our kids were old enough to go. And so while our kids were with my parents and Tony, we awaited their return at the northern Minnesota cabin where I learned to water ski and caught crayfish with my siblings and cousins as a kid. For those few days of perfect summer, we weren't troubled by the conversation that had plagued us all year of whether or not we were returning to California after a year away to stay or move somewhere where life was simpler, cheaper, and more sustainable. We were enjoying ourselves so much that we could almost believe that life somewhere else was not only probable, but preferable. And then halfway through the week, we woke up to a forecast of fog. As soon as I opened the door, I was hit with a smell that was both recognizable and impossible, wildfire smoke. I staggered back inside, my eyes stinging, and shook my head, still disbelieving even as I scrolled through the news cycle on my phone. Canada was on fire. There were fires in Minnesota, too. It felt like a sick joke, a final blow after a year of steady punches. Here we were in the land of 10,000 lakes, a place prized for its crystalline waters and pine forests, a place where thunderstorms made the summers green. Suddenly, all of the doomsdayers who had told us we couldn't escape climate change didn't seem so off course. In the span of a few minutes, we sunk into a gloom so deep and dark that we couldn't even put words to it. The Air Quality Index said that our air in Minnesota was the worst in the country, well over 300, hazardous for all groups. We duct taped a HEPA filter to a box fan, a hack that we'd learned from five years of wildfire season that we never thought we'd need outside of California. For the next week, smoke spread across the country, behind us and before us, stretching all the way to the East Coast. I need to back up here a little to explain the full weight of that moment. Season two of Shelter in Place follows the pandemic odyssey that my family and I embarked on when we left California in September of 2020 and drove across the country to Massachusetts, where my mother-in-law had thrown us a lifeline that was right up there with Athena's assist to Odysseus in the Odyssey. She'd agreed to take our three kids five days a week so that we could keep making these episodes and get our fledgling startup of a podcast training program off the ground. But we never would have ended up there if it hadn't been for the California wildfires that made our already challenging pandemic life in California feel downright impossible. Now, almost a year later, we were headed back to California, seeing family and friends along the way. When we stopped in Minnesota, we were just a few weeks away from our return. To help us find our way, we posed a single question to a dozen people from all across the country. When you look back at this pandemic year and a half, what have you lost and what have you found? In today's episode, we're back for part two of stories from the shelter in place lost and found, starting with this one. I've lost faith in the sense that people really care, especially people that have power. This is Zoe. Zoe says plainly what so many of us have felt but not spoken. We're struggling. We're hoping that the systems that have been set up to protect us will take care of us. But all too often, they don't. Zoe works in an academic library in New York City. A quick note here that Zoe uses they, them pronouns, so you'll hear me use them too. There was a point recently when four people got coronavirus in the two-week span, and the job didn't close, and nothing really changed. It was just like a shock to the system because I felt like people there really cared and they would have done more to make me feel assured and make me feel safe. 
the average American spends nearly 35 hours a week at work, which doesn't sound like much if you like your job. But if work is a place where you feel unsafe, 35 hours is more than enough to take a toll on your mental and physical health. Low-wage workers have been working the whole time in the pandemic without any real protection, like grocery store workers or nurses, and they've just been called heroes. People thank them, but there's no real financial support. They have to do this in order to keep going, and they don't have a choice. It felt more like I've been seeing the inequalities that are always in the city. I just see that some people are safer than others, and some people are protected and others aren't. Whether we're talking about systemic racism or vaccines, this pandemic has been a kind of reckoning for our country and our world. Things we used to take for granted, we're now questioning. The systems and people that we thought were there for us have let us down. I've lost a lot of faith in institutions. I think emerging from the pandemic, I will have my best interests in mind at all times and not let people take advantage of me so much. Not in a personal way with the people that I love and care about, but with the people that have power over me, I just will not expect them to take care of me. I am going to be more selfish. Zoe calls it selfishness, but I think what they're getting at is something kinder. It's what we all want, to know that we're safe, that people will take care of us when we can't take care of ourselves. Zoe is trying to figure out how to exist in a system that won't always look out for them. They're trying to heal their disappointment at feeling undervalued by the people who should be taking care of them. We talk a lot at Shelter in Place about how transforming communities and our systems begins by transforming ourselves. But that personal change isn't enough if it stops there. The ways that we keep ourselves and our families safe is only half the story. In our current situation, where the conversations surrounding mask wearing and vaccines have become not about safety but personal freedom, what would it look like to reimagine our public spaces so that we can all feel safe? for us to look out for our grocery store clerks and librarians and gas station attendants, the way we do for our own families. This next story comes from another essential worker who has thought a lot about that. I'm Yvonne. I live in Philadelphia. I've got two kids. They're three and five. And just as the pandemic was starting, I was starting nursing school. I was all set to start in June of 2020 at UPenn, and then the pandemic happened, and the whole world shut down, and all of a sudden my kids weren't in school or daycare anymore. I was trying to finish up my final prerequisite, and the prospect of starting school was all of a sudden very fraught. It was no longer a clear road forward. In those early days of the pandemic, so much of life shut down. But for working parents with young children, work life became transposed onto home life. Suddenly, there wasn't enough time for either. All of a sudden, everyone was baking bread, and if I could only get my kids to take one bath a week, you know? <laughs> Even when you have work you feel really passionate about, it is sometimes very difficult to feel justified in letting go of some of the other stuff one always has to let go of to do anything, because we always have 15 balls in the air. I experienced this single-mindedness about it. If I'm getting my kids to take one bath a week, but I'm doing really important work with my other time, work that will make the world a better place for them and will model for them the kind of citizens that I hope they will grow up to be, like, fine, they can be dirty. I mean, they're happy being dirty, like, you know. That single-mindedness about getting her kids to bathe once a week and giving herself permission to pursue her career gained a sense of urgency a few months into the pandemic. The maternal health care crisis for people of color, I knew it was there. I'm a black woman. I have my own experiences with it. But it became very visceral in that time. There was a lot of upheaval last summer around racial violence and racial justice. It really helped crystallize for me not just how much I care about reproductive health and believe that all people with 
reproductive organs often don't get the kind of care or the kind of education around their reproductive health that they deserve and should be entitled to. And there's something about healthcare nursing, meeting with patients and putting your hands on people, offering touch and comfort and humor and just time, I think is so powerful. And I think that is nurturing both ways. I felt called to this kind of work in a way that I hadn't always in my prior career. Yvonne had witnessed this power in her mother's work, but she never thought it would apply to her career. My mother was a midwife and she passed away, it will be 10 years this year. When I was growing up and she was going to midwifery school, like I didn't think I was gonna take this path. And then when she passed, I still didn't think I was gonna take this path. And then my first kid was born and I still didn't think this was where I would end up. And then somehow I'm here anyway. <laughs> I feel like in an existential sense, we're occupying the same space again, and that's very comforting. There's something really beautifully full circle about that. The first time we spoke with Yvonne was back in May, so I called her this week to see how she's doing. Boy, the balance of family and work has shifted, I will say. We are getting in one bath a week. That's the very low bar we set, and I think we need it. <laughs> for 18 months, her boys are back at school. The oldest started kindergarten, and the youngest just started preschool. So the shift in the routines, honestly, has been really jarring for everyone. Yvonne has had some jarring shifts herself, too. She only has one semester left of her program to become a nurse midwife. But when she learned that her program was going back to in-person learning, she ultimately decided to take a leave of absence and not put her kids at risk. It was disappointing after all of this time and that sense of purpose she felt in coming full circle to her mother's career. But she knows she will finish school, hopefully in the spring. And in the meantime, she's able to be there for her boys in their own time of transition. Do I feel lost or do I feel found? I don't think that the answer is either because being found suggests that there's an end, but like that's not the way life works. There's this dichotomy between lost and found. I feel very grounded in my life, but I certainly don't feel like I have finished any particular thing in my life something that I have realized as I move through adulthood is that you never really arrive anywhere. We're always finding, we're always discovering. For so many of us, the pandemic has been a time not just of losing, but of letting go. We're collectively re-evaluating our priorities, deciding if we want to go back to the way things were before, or do something completely different. My name is Yi. I am originally from Vietnam, and I immigrated to the U.S. when I was 10 years old. I was working in San Francisco Bay Area as an architectural designer, but now I moved back to Arizona to be closer with family. I have these two drawings of cacti. It was in charcoal, and the other one's in graphite and pencil. I spent hundreds of hours on these drawings. Each of them is shaded and drawn with very precise line work. And these were two assignments that got me an A in class. Grades were really important to me, but after all these years, these drawings represented so many things that I didn't like about myself. Looking for people's approval of me and people to recognize that I'm good at something. And when I moved from the Bay Area, I look at these two drawings, and then I just threw it away. When I heard Yi's story the first time, I felt sad hearing that he'd thrown away his art. But then I thought about my own artistic journey. Sometimes you need to cast off the old work before the new work can come. The thing that I gained is I grew out my hair six plus inches. This is the funny thing because my family are hairstylists and barbers. It started out as I can't come home, so my hair automatically grew out. When everything opened up again, I could have gotten haircuts, but then I was like, oh wait, why do I have an issue with long hair? Hair is just hair, like it's part of your body, like it's fine. I grew to like it. Yi started to dig deeper into why he liked it. He started thinking about the narratives he'd heard in his family, about what it means to be a man, 
I did some research. Vietnamese men, princes and kings and warriors grew out their hair and it's a sense of pride in themselves. Respecting it and taking care of it is like taking care of what your ancestors gave you, which is your body. I found a strong sense of my Vietnamese identity. In the past, Yi had always just gotten his haircut whenever he was home in Arizona. When I'm in the barbershop with my sister or my mom, it's an opportunity for me to sit down and have a conversation with them. Usually they're very deep conversation because I can't go anywhere. Without those barbershop conversations, Yi had to find other ways to connect with his family. He started calling them on the phone more, trying to explain why he didn't want to cut his hair. And then something remarkable happened. As he learned to embrace his long hair as a sign of his culture and manhood, rather than a contradiction to it, his family started to see it that way too. All of this kind of grew with my hair. There's these narratives about what it is to be a man. I've never had this length of hair before. I've always had short hair, and I just wanted to see what my body could do. So far, I really like it. I found a lot of comfort, a sense of pride in myself, in my body, and my identity. My hair is giving me all these emotions and confidence. I really like these things that I found with long hair. He realized that his decision to grow out his hair wasn't just about hair. I mean, sure, it was just hair. But by growing it out, he was giving himself permission to be something other than what he thought others expected him to be. He started thinking back to those drawings that he threw away, to the person he was when he made them. Being an immigrant in this country where English was not my first language, in a class full of kids who had parents who were architects, I felt like I wasn't good enough. I had to be better than other people. I felt like I had to do more than them. Externally, I was working very hard to prove to others that I'm good. And internally, it was the same. I got rid of a lot of internal things with the two drawings that I just threw away. I thought I would be kind of sad throwing them away, but it was so easy. I felt nothing. I put it in the trash, and then I moved on to other things. We reached out to Yi this past week to ask him if he'd cut his hair since we spoke to him in May. He hasn't. He said that the rituals around having long hair have taken on even more meaning for him. He's still finding joy in the little things about his hair, like the way it feels to comb through it, or how intimate it feels to have someone else push a strand of it behind his ear. He says that those rituals have taught him to respect not just his hair, but his entire body. He says, my hair is sacred to me with the history of my lineage. My mom, my sister, my grandma, and my great-greats before me gave me this hair. It is a part of my Vietnamese identity that I'm proud of. I don't see myself cutting my hair soon, but maybe in the future I can donate that hair to someone. As of now, I'm still gonna continue growing it, but I know that it won't be a forever thing. It could be. Contributing uniqueness is living artistically. This next story comes to us from another artist who has been a friend to Shelter in Place since almost the beginning. My name is Elmer Yazi. That's what people call me. I live in Northwest New Mexico. I am Native American. I'm Navajo. I grew up on the reservation. I was born in 1954. I interviewed Elmer back in season one, early in the pandemic, in an episode called A Beautiful Place. Our area got hit really, really hard. We were either one or two in the country as far as positive cases. My younger brother and my oldest brother got sick with COVID and their families got sick. They all made it through, but we have seven cousins who passed away. When Elmer and I spoke for this episode in May, it had been almost exactly a year since our first conversation. Last May, June, and July, I was delivering food, delivering face masks to the remote areas of the reservation. That's where I saw people not even aware how bad this pandemic was and still hanging out together and still being culturally sociable. That's one of the reasons why our area got hit really, really hard. There was a lot of doubt like, oh, this isn't that serious, you know. 
And now with all the people that have passed away and the tragedy of that physical death, you know, it's been an eye opener. When we turned green this past spring, I went to several different homes to help out. And I saw all those families in greater spirits and communicating with each other, not doing the normal cultural greetings, but being very conscious of that space, using vocabulary that I didn't normally hear them use. Vocabulary of kindness and patience, understanding. There was just this celebration, this lifting up. That's what I see happening now. Anytime our whole framework is stretched, you're going to find yourself going through somewhat of a fluctuation emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, physically. You go through these phases. For Elmer, that fluctuation has taken a very specific shape. One of my students, she lost her mother, her father, and two grandmothers. I was so moved to help support this young lady financially. I put four paintings online. All four paintings sold in one day. And then one of those four people who bought a painting, they've continued to send this young lady $100 per month. Those kinds of things are happening. I started getting this extra money from people coming by saying they wanted to buy a drawing or a painting. And I was able to help a number of our families with financial support in the loss of their loved ones. Normally, I wouldn't be able to give them a couple hundred dollars, but this one man and his wife in Tucson, they ordered a painting for 3,500. And it was like, I knew when the painting was being done, my goodness, God wants me to give this money away. You get to that spiritual momentum place where you really know and feel in your heart, the more you give, the more you receive, it's like overwhelming. It brings you to tears. You lay in bed at night thinking, Lord God, what else can we do? Those kinds of things become very, very real. Elmer said he's also found space in his life to start writing letters to past students, to family, to friends. Then I started writing relatives. Then I started writing people I knew that I wondered about, and I just would write them words of love and encouragement. Elmer didn't stop there. He felt moved to write to government leaders to address the systemic injustices that he saw as well. I've found a greater courage to speak out to our community. I've found a greater courage to speak out politically. To be more active in writing letters to our state reps and state congress people, to write the governor, that's a huge thing that I had not done in years. At the same time, Elmer was encouraging his students to find courage to speak out in their own way, through their paintings and artwork. When we talk about painting, I'm telling them, who is going to see this? How is it going to touch their heart, soul, and mind? What's going to happen to them when they see this painting? Some of the projects that have come out are directly connected to the tragedy of the killing of black people in our country and now more with Asian people. I don't care about design composition. That's years ago. I don't teach that way. I go directly to the heart of what we need to do, and that's to teach expression and the freedom and the courage that comes along with that story. But it's the same way with words. Every word is important. Think about what you're saying. When you contribute something that is unique, that always connects to the human spirit. That's designed that way. I'm totally convinced of that. Contributing uniqueness is living artistically. Talking with Elmer feels like sitting at the feet of a sage, a master. He speaks with the wisdom and perspective of someone who's lived a lot of life, someone who's learned from the losses and the gains. His perspective as an artist has deep roots in his culture and also in his faith. I've been asked if I was a medicine man. I've been asked if I was Northern Plains, Lakota or Cheyenne. I've been asked, are you a Christian? I started seeing this whole theme of living artistically in the way Jesus Christ lived in the response that the crowds had. And I was so full of excitement to share with my students and with others. Our main storyline is a spiritual journey. 
my deep hope is for the students to get to know God as an artist and human beings as artists and a step further, what it means to live artistically, to contribute uniqueness. Elmer retired from teaching this past spring, but he's still active in his community and he's still painting. He and his community have lost so much in this pandemic, but he says that there have also been some beautiful things to find. Elmer says he's clearer on his purpose now than ever before. It has become honed. The rough edges are off. The way that I paint as an elder and as an artist, every mark has a purpose. All of what I am, my actions, my rising up, my going about through the day, every part of it has become more valuable than what it was before the pandemic. If I need to lay down and it's two o'clock in the afternoon, I'll go lay down because there's a purpose to that rest. And maybe somebody's coming that I need to speak with later in the day, that I need to be up late with. Who knows? I don't worry about things and I find myself not being late anymore. Even if I get there physically, measurably behind, that doesn't affect me as being late because prior to that, I was doing exactly what I was supposed to be doing. 48 hours after I woke up to smoke in northern Minnesota, the blue skies were back, but only for a brief few days. The smoke followed us all the way back to California, and the discouragement we felt did too. But Elmer's words remind me that there's a journey at play that's bigger than the one that we made across the country, bigger even than the challenges we face in healing our wounded planet. I think Elmer is right. I think our main journey is a spiritual one. I think Yvonne is right too, that being lost and being found is a false dichotomy. Usually, it's a bit of both. We're always losing and we're always finding, sometimes at exactly the same time. Sometimes it takes losing to find what we've been looking for all along. We found out recently that we won an award at the International Women's Podcast Awards. The award was for changing the world one moment at a time. I hope that we are doing that with these episodes. It's been my effort to live artistically. But the moments I'm treasuring most from this pandemic odyssey will never win awards or get recognition. The voice message I got late one night from one of our Kasama Collective trainees telling me how she just listened to the episode we did with Justin McRoberts and what she heard made her feel seen. The phone conversation I had with my dad while I was walking on the trails near our apartment, hearing him say that he was proud of me, even if I was struggling. The nights where Nate and I couldn't sleep because we were too excited about an idea. The giant post-it notes with the beginnings of our Kasama Collective curriculum that covered every inch of our apartment living room walls. The 15-minute audio thank you that our first cohort sent to us, telling us what the experience had meant to them that had Nate and I weeping. They're moments that I never would have found if we hadn't lost our pre-pandemic life first. Finding doesn't make the losses any less painful. It certainly doesn't bring back the people or things that we've lost. It's not a matter of tipping the scales. It's more like Elmer said, marks on a painting that make up the bigger picture. Each mark has its purpose. I wanna end today's episode not with my own words, but Elmer's. No matter how chaotic it can appear, things are falling into place. You find that type of thinking in the indigenous elders. They don't worry. They don't consider themselves late. They consider themselves on time. They don't think about, oh, things are falling out of place. Things are falling into place. There's a reason why. As an elder and as an artist, you sit back and look at what you accomplished. Every mark you make has a purpose. Every stroke has been done correctly. Things are falling into place. The Shelter in Place music was created by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. Additional music and sound effects for this episode come from Storyblocks. This very special two-part episode was the combined work of graduates from our first and second cohort, and also trainees from our third cohort, which began last month. 
Clara Smith and Michelle O'Brien were associate producers for this episode and conducted our interviews. Alana Herlands was the producer overseeing that process. Nikki Schaefer and Bethany Hawkins were our assistant editors for this episode. Meridian Waters and Zara Krim were our assistant producers. Hannah Fowler was our assistant audio editor, and Nathan Wizard was our associate audio editor. Nate Davis is our creative director. Sarah Edgel is our design director. And our amazing season three Kasama Collective trainees are Bethany Hawkins, Hannah Fowler, Meridian Waters, Nathan Wizard, Nikki Schaefer, and Zara Krim. Until next time, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.